We're going to look at the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 84. Uh, It was moved from uh, our service last week, um, and uh, we didn't get a chance to uh, dig into that. We were on Zoom doing morning prayer, so we are going to do that today. And we're going to do it because it's asking a a profound question, which I brought up last week. What do you want? At first glance, it it doesn't seem like a profound question at all, but if you stop to ponder it, it's actually the big question of life. If somebody asked you today, what do you want, in the biggest sense, what would you say? What's the one thing that you want most in life and out of life? What animates you? What do you live for? These are crucial questions. George Bernard Shaw in his play Man and Superman has one of the characters saying, there are two great tragedies in life. One is not to get your heart's desire. The other is to get it. I think he's really summing up what we all struggle with, that the one thing we most desire would actually deliver for us just One thing, one desire that would give us all that it promised. Because so many things don't. The house we always wanted, the career that we prepared for, maybe the person that we married, not me. Or even the perfect family Christmas. Personally, I think the Spice Girls summed it up pretty well in their song, Wannabe, which is 26 years old this year. Does anyone else feel old? And probably means they aren't quite as spicy as they used to be. (laughs) Yo, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really want, what you really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I want to, I want to, I want to. I wanna, I really, really, really wanna zigzag. Uh. <laughs> well, it's not exactly Tennyson, is it? <laughs> but it does say something important. Most of us really don't know what we desire ultimately. We can't articulate what it is that we're truly living for. So we go through all our activity, all our achievement, all our money, and we're still left unfulfilled. Maybe that's you here or watching this morning. What do you want? Not what should you want. If, if we were to open that up for discussion in a group full of Christians, I'm pretty sure we'd all give the same answer, kind of like the little kid in Sunday school when the teacher asked, hey, what's fuzzy and gray and has a bushy gray tail. Nobody says a word. She says, well, it climbs up in trees and jumps from branch to branch. Crickets. So she says, what? It collects nuts and stores them for the winter. Tommy, what is it? And he says, well, I'm thinking squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. (laughs) Because that's the answer. What should you want is not the question. The question is, what do you want? 
What is your heart's desire? We would all concur, I think, that it's foolish to spend life on what does not satisfy us. We would wholeheartedly agree that it's always disillusioning to live for things that leave us feeling empty. But we keep trying. So the question still needs answering. What do you long for? What do you want? Another way to ask this, of course, is what do you love? St. Augustine said in the early 6th century, my love is my weight. And wherever I am carried, it is my love that carried me there. Jamie Smith, the philosopher, says you are, plain and simple, what you love. So what do you want is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. Because what we love decides what we do, how we spend our money and our time and invest our emotions and affections. It dictates everything. Jesus says where your treasure is, there's your heart. What we count most precious defines who we are. It's our true heart longings that direct and drive our lives day in and day out. And we cannot escape this. And it's into that context that we're going to look at this psalm. And this guy, one of the sons of Korah, who it's thought were a, a guild of musicians that served in the temple and they wrote music and, and played music. And um, actually today we're going to, because of that, we're going to sing Psalm 84 for our, our offertory. You'll recognize it. So this guy, one of the sons of Korah, tells us unequivocally that there is one thing just one that's worth all our desire. One thing that satisfies the longing of the heart. He says, if you hunger and thirst after God, desiring him alone, he'll not only provide satisfaction now for this life, but he'll also help you live hopefully for the future. This psalm is describing a literal and required pilgrimage of a faithful Israelite to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. But it's also incredibly helpful as a picture of our own pilgrimage in this life toward God. Let's have a look at, at verses 1 and 2, how he yearns for God's presence. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. Great word, isn't it? Yearn. We tend not to describe things in that way today. When was the last time you actually yearned for something? It's a great word because it's not hip or cool. And many of us are just like too cool to show that we would ever need anything outside ourselves bad enough to describe it as yearning. But this guy's got it all on the table. He's, his heart's right out there on his sleeve. And he says, I'm, I'm desperate. I've got nothing and I need something. And it's the presence of God. He puts it all on display and says, I yearn to connect with God and be where he is. I'm desperate to be in the place where he dwells. And as we read it in its context, it's the temple, 
the courts of the Lord. The temple is the great significant place in the Old Testament that God gave to his people to meet with him. It was a place where God's people could meet with God and God could meet with his people and his people could be together. That was the point of the temple. And it was the gift of God to shine his glory into people's everyday lives. And so they went through the, and as they went through the ups and downs of ordinary life, their eyes could be lifted to see the glory of the eternal God, to know that he was with them. Ezekiel wrote of one amazing time when God came and presented himself in the temple. Chapter 10, verse 4, And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the radiance of the glory of the Lord. It was a place of awe for God's people. It was the place where God showed his glory. But it was also the place where God showed his intimacy where his grace and mercy were literally on display for everyone to see. Because they were just like us. They messed up with God all the time. And so at the center of the temple was an altar where they came to confess their sin and ask for forgiveness and where God met them in his grace. This table is a picture of that altar, but we do not call it an altar. It is the Lord's table because we no longer offer sacrifices on it. But it pictures that place where we come and experience the grace and mercy of God. The temple was like the welcome mat of heaven where he said, whatever mess you're in today, come in. Come in and meet the living God. I'm full, yes, of power and glory, but also grace and mercy. So come in. Have your sins forgiven. Come close again. Come in and be one of my people. I mean, the temple was precious to these guys. Verses 3 and 4 then reveal a little bit of something about the altar where sin was paid for and costly sacrifice, where forgiveness was given. I want to be there, he says. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altar. In other words, a place of incredible safety and security. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Today, as we read it, as we read that with New Testament eyes, we know there's a better and more permanent temple mentioned in the Bible, and that's Jesus himself. The New Testament teaches us that he is God's perfect, radiant glory and holiness. His life is perfection and holiness and righteousness. He's God's glory who came down to earth to show us the glory of God, where God would live with man and man would be presentable before God, and he comes in awesome power, yet deep humility, and he comes in the intimacy into our mess in order that we might come close to God through his sacrifice on the cross. That's what Mark's talking about in Mark 15 when he says that when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, 
God had made a way. He ripped the curtain so that we could come into God's presence. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And he was in the temple when he said it, but the temple he'd spoken of was his body. And when his disciples recalled what he'd said, they realized he was saying, I will make you close to God forever. No need for another altar. No need for another curtain. I'm here. But the Bible goes further, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? So the people of God who enjoy God's unchanging safety in Jesus, who shelter under his lordship, protected by him, because the judgment of God falls on him and not on us, as we nest in the temple of God, Jesus... We enjoy great safety and security there. And not only that, but he gives us his spirit so that we become the temple of the living God. So that as we, as God's people, his temple, join together in the great temple, the Lord Jesus, we dwell in the safety of God's presence. We enjoy all of God's privileges and we reflect God's presence and glory to one another and into the world. And as I read the scriptures, God's intention has always been from the beginning to reflect his glory and to mediate his presence, at least in part, through his people. It was true in the garden when he created mankind in his image, but they rebelled. It was true when he called out Abraham and set aside a people for himself. It was true in the giving of the law to those people at Sinai, even though they couldn't keep it. It was true when he sent his son in human flesh to redeem us from the mess that we had created. And it's true today as we live out our calling as his church. Even though, because we're human, we often fail at it. This is one of the big reasons why, even though people will disappoint us, being a Christian cannot be a solitary experience. We need the intimate presence of God's people in our lives to fully experience God's glory and his presence. That's our design. Hebrews says, don't stop meeting together. Is that to beat you up or to cajole you to go to church? No. Hebrews says, there's a better way. That's what Hebrews is about. There's a better way in Jesus. And one of the ways we know him most profoundly most profoundly, is when we gather in the presence of his people. I fear that we may have lost sight of that in a virtual world. Of course, we were already headed in that direction. But it's a beautiful thing when we're part of God's people and we come together in genuine fellowship. We desire more and more of God because he never disappoints. So we just want more and more. It intensifies our desire for the only thing that can satisfy us ultimately. It's a blurry picture of eternity, the never-ending, always satisfying experience of the living God. And if we understood that, what it will be. We'd want more of it now. This is one of the reasons. We, th- this is muscle that we need to build again. This is one of the reasons why beginning on Ash Wednesday and going through uh, Monday, Thursday, we are going to have um, some small groups in our church meeting under 
the leadership and direction of Father Steve so that we can encourage each other to want more and more of God. But as we all know, there are seasons of life where even God's people who are sheltering under Jesus go through really, really tough times. And this psalm does not hide from that. I find verse 6 both sobering and hopeful. It begins, as they go through the valley of Baca. Firstly, it is not without significance that this pilgrim passes through what he calls the Valley of Baca, which literally means the Valley of Weeping or the Veil of Tears. Some commentators think this was probably a real but unknown to us place. For others, it's figurative or metaphorical. Either way, our pilgrimage is guaranteed to walk it occasionally, to walk occasionally through the valley of weeping. As they go through the valley, it says, not if they go. The going through is guaranteed, no matter who you are or where you are in life. But there's more. The word baka is also the Hebrew word for balsam tree, so-called because of the way it weeps when sap is cut, when it weeps sap when it's cut. It, it's not just cacti that grow in the desert. Do you know about the balsam tree? It grows there too. Maybe you've thought about the balsam tree when you've used Kleenex, and it says on the box, contains balsam. This is because balsam has some amazing medicinal properties. Balsam sap is a salve. The word balm, as in lip balm, and balm of Gilead, comes directly from the word balsam. It's a great thing. And what I think this writer might be hinting at, might be just pointing us toward, is that God has a way of giving us balsam in our tough times of soothing us, of, of helping us realize that he's got what we need to get us through the valley of weeping, and only he can do that. Verse 6 continues, and this is where the indispensableness of the people of God comes back into view. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. So there's two sources of life-giving water in this psalm. First, as God's people, when they went through the dry valley, they discovered that God's people had already made it a place of springs. They'd already dug wells. So, so as they came after them, they were sustained and refreshed, and refreshed by what they experienced as God's faithful provision for his people in the past. And that's true for us as well. When we give testimony of suffering through tough times and how God provided for us, it helps sustain and refresh others. It becomes to them a spring of water. This is an incredible gift. The second source of water is rain. 
Did you know it rains in the desert? Not very often, but it is worth waiting for because when it does, it is spectacularly transformative. It fills, it fills things with pools of water. The early rain, it says, covers it with pools. In the valley of Baca says the psalmist, when you're really dry and you're desperate for God to bless you, just remember, it's worth waiting for. There are generations of God's people, a communion of saints and a community of believers who've gone through Baca before us, before you, and know the surety that God will provide. Maybe not in the way that we imagine, but where God guides, he always provides. So when you're in Baca, talk to your brothers and sisters. Read biographies. A severe mercy is an excellent one, by the way. But immerse yourself in stories of God's faithful provision. You have to also cry out to God, though. Do you see that there's human responsibility here? You have to look for the water and wait for the rain, and you cry out. Look at verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. And as we come to God and earnestly ask him to fill our life in the barren place, what we find is that Jesus, the king of protection, comes amongst us and says, you're safe. Don't worry. I know where we're going. I'll provide for you every step of this pilgrimage and for all eternity. All is well. Thanks be to God. So what do you want? Is it lots of things to occupy your life so that life feels a little more full? Or is it to find the one who will fulfill your life? Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who trusts in you. Probably better to say blessed in this instant. Do you hear the contentment in that? God satisfies, says the psalmist. The question is, is he your satisfaction? How earnest is your praise to him? How desperate your desire for him to fill your life? How vivid your understanding of what he's done for you. And how big your love for his people. I just absolutely love the picture this writer paints of the birds who nest in the temple. He looks at them and says, they have found a beautiful place to be in the home of God. And he says more than anything, I want to be there in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. By the way, nothing that I've said to you today is academic or theoretical. Um, Lauren and I are walking through our own valley of weeping right now. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Lauren was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And although <laughs> we still have a ways to walk and the pathway is a little unsure, 
um, we are hopeful and have a pretty good prognosis. Um, I will tell you that one of the things that has been very, very precious to us in these last couple of weeks have been that so many brothers and sisters who've traversed this valley before us, they have, they have come into our lives and made it more a place of springs just by um, sharing their stories of God's provision. So just going to ask you, um, we are scheduled for surgery on January 20th, and we will know much more then, but we would um, covet your, your prayers.